Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. I'm Joe Dworsky, the president of retail banking for Supernet. And each week on our podcast, we'll take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like yourself on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest has over 24 years of experience as a portfolio manager, allocator, and capital markets professional across multiple asset classes. He is a recognized voice within the investment community as a trader and market strategist. For over a decade, Tim has been a regular contributor and prominent voice on CNBC's Fast Money, as well as being cited as one of the top finance professionals on X, formerly Twitter, as well as recognized by the Wall Street Journal's top tweets for your money. He's also a pioneer in the cannabis investing space and notes this is an exciting time in a high growth and emerging cannabis sector, and his firm has been actively investing in cannabis through, through an ETF that Tim manages on a daily basis. Please welcome to today's show, Tim Seymour, Portfolio Manager for Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF. Tim, thank you and welcome to today's show. Thanks for that, that lead-in. Boy, that, that sounded very impressive. Yeah. Hopefully, I can live up to that. No, it's fantastic to be here and look forward to talking about some of the really important things that are always moving around in the cannabis space with, with the, you know, the common thread has always been the excitement, the optimism for growth investors, you know, leaving aside the social dynamics. I mean, we are talking about a sector that's underinvested, that there's very little institutional money. And there's a lot of structural reasons for that. I've been investing in emerging and new asset classes a lot of my career. And that's kind of what got me focused on cannabis. And you know, it's never a straight line and it's not supposed to be, but these are pretty fascinating times uh, yet again, as we've been through so many cycles here. So mm-hmm. I look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. I wanted to take a step back. You kind of gave a little overview there just to give our listeners uh, a little background on you know how you started. You started to touch on that and what led to getting into the cannabis world and then talk about the ETF that you launched uh, back in 2019. Sure. I actually, for 13, 14 years, ran a long, short emerging markets uh, equity hedge fund. And you spent, uh, I lived in Russia for a couple of years. I spent a lot of time traveling around the world looking at, at these high growth markets. And when cannabis started really percolating, you know, it, it's a decade ago, but, you know, for me, a, a lot of my my real, okay, I'm paying attention to this started in when one of my former partners from my EM days was asked to basically head up the, the U.S. business for a company called Tikkun Olam, which was you know, Israel's first medical producer and you know one of the, the early pioneers in terms of uh, a lot of the science and a lot of the, call it the, the, the medicinal advocacy that was coming out of Israel, which you know people tend to know is always a leader in terms of some of that focus across biotech and, and healthcare and whatnot. So anyway, when, when an old friend, a good friend, a partner said, this is what I'm doing, I said, wow, I really need to think about this. And I made an investment and I, they put me on the advisory board. And this is 2016, yeah, early 2016. And, and, and I, you know, I knew that we'd already seen uh, some legalizations. I knew we had a couple of catalysts coming in California and north of the border. And I, I said, yeah, I mean, this, this makes a lot of sense to me, especially when emerging markets are often driven by 
some of the same dynamics that we have at work here, which are, again, from an investor's perspective, there's always a heavy macro component of it. There are catalysts, there are elements either of geopolitics or macroeconomic or legislative moments. It's always also characterized by very shallow, immature, and in many cases, inefficient and maybe structurally you know, difficult to be accessed capital markets and, 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 and exchanges and ways to allocate capital. So you know, there's always you know those dynamics, and and where that that stuff fits cannabis to a T. So as I started to do more work in the sector and started to really also understand some of the social dynamics around it and and why it was happening, it, the rest is history. And it's been eight or nine years of where you know I think the, the the cycles we've seen have all been different, but it does it really reminds me of uh, you know investing in Russia, which by the time it, you know I had really, you know, settled in, I kind of caught the, I moved to Russia in the fall of 1998 and Russia had already had, you know, arguably, you know, one and a half, maybe two cycles already of kind of, you know, uh, boom bust. And then, you know, add a couple more. And again, this is why I find it very exciting. I also mm -hmm. believe that there's just a lot of folks that really either don't have the means to invest in the space. And that's why running an active ETF to me, makes a lot of sense and, mm -hmm. and why diversification makes a lot of sense and why and the markets move very quickly. I mean, you, you, you're not to cut you off, no, but go ahead. What, you, what you said about Russia, obviously those are very fast moving. They were very fast moving, very volatile markets. I remember, you know, investing in a couple of uh, exchange traded or mm -hmm. Russian companies here yep. and they move very quickly, obviously a lot of volatility. So that overlay into what's happening in cannabis, you mentioning that this is a actively managed ETF. I mean, I, get, I imagine you have to be trading in and out of these positions. I mean, the market, the cannabis market, um, obviously they've thrown out the baby with the bathwater over the last several years, you know, in cannabis. So it must be a more from an active management perspective, the best way to, to generate alpha if you can. I think so. Uh, I, I think active certainly as opposed to passive with rebalancing based upon, you know, a three or six month lag on this flow, it's no question. And an and active strategy is one where both stock picking and you know call it alpha generation is is driven by a handful of things it's 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 not only meeting with companies and understanding what uh what their balance sheets look like what their income statement uh looks like where where they have their assets where they are looking to allocate capital what but it, it's it really is understanding um some of the dynamics in those markets themselves and if you think about What's been going on also in in the cannabis world for the last six months? You've had a couple of bigger companies in the space actually list up in the Toronto Stock Exchange, and the TSX is you know, arguably uh, you know one of the top three exchanges in the world. A level of accreditation and a level of compliance, you know, kind of oversight that actually makes it a lot easier to invest in these companies. And the reason I bring that up is a lot of times. You know, running an active strategy, it, it's understanding where liquidity is, where some of the structural dynamics are, where investors may not want they, you know, they may not even have the ability to invest if if the best company, quote unquote, whatever that means, is is actually you know listed in a on an exchange or in a in a market that they can't access, they're going to get the next best thing. So alpha uh, is generated in many different ways, but I look, I there's no question that being active in this space, it's it. You know, trading in and out of these markets probably is almost impossible, but but making you know tactical calls and making real calls, whether it is on a you know a day to day, week to week basis, 
I think that's critical. And we're going to continue to see it. And look, if, if in hindsight, trading any, you know, fading any major move we've seen in cannabis over the last, you know, five years would have, you know, made you a lot of money. There's no question that you could trade this market and there's a lot of opportunity to have uh, probably traded it effectively. You know, our mandate really is the companies that I think are the best positioned today and the ones that are going to be also the right ones for tomorrow. And and I also want to own ancillary and picks and shovels and software and financial services and cannabis. The investable market cap is pretty much dominated by these large and against all relative, but big, large vertically integrated companies that, you know, right now are a way to invest, but I think longer term, we're going to find the ability to really be, you know, finding the subsectors and that's, it's going to get more sophisticated every day. Right. And and that's the the, the cool thing about investing here actively. Two, two follow-ups on that. You mentioned, you know, the Canadian markets, the Canadian Mm -hmm. listings, obviously we've seen, you know, more of these U.S.-based companies, you know, go north of the border to get listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. That I thought that was slowing down, but based on what you're you're telling me, I guess that hasn't. When do you see that changing and where more of these US-based cannabis businesses start listing on the, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange versus going north of the border? Is that uh, yeah, have well, to do with federal federal legislation? It does. Um and and so there's there's kind of two different moments in time for U.S. companies going north of the border. And they're very different. And And it's a great question. Let me explain the difference because I, I, I think if you go back to 2018, 2019, U.S. companies were listing in Canada and U.S. investors were, were buying them on Canadian exchanges because of the federal dynamic. And perversely, Canadian companies were listing on the New York Stock Exchange and on the NASDAQ, and whether it was Tilray or Canopy Growth or you know, Aurora or, you know, some of these companies that are barely alive at this point. But, you know, Tilray at its peak was a $25 billion market cap on an intraday, at least low off top. And, and, and so those dynamics were crazy then, and they were frustrating for us investors. And as I got, it's on CNBC too, talking about the cannabis space. Not only am I always careful about, you know, trying to, to, you know, really just talk more about the investment dynamics of a sector like this, rather than picking the horses. But but people used to always say, hey, Tim, why are you talking about all these Canadian names when it's a, you know, the US is the biggest market in the world in every sector, and it is here in cannabis, and like we're in the US. I think, why are we doing this? And it's the reason we're doing this is we're so, I wasn't talking about it, you know the Canadian names as being the best ones to invest in or the worst ones. I was really, you know, part of the dynamic is when Tilray trades in the New York Stock Exchange and or the NASDAQ, it, it becomes a proxy and a vehicle for investment, whether it's the right name or not. Tilray is a very different company than it was back then, by the way. And in fact, they merged with another company. And 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 you know, I think ultimately, actually, they they merged with a stronger Canadian, you know, call it competitor at the time. And I actually think that the combination of the two companies is actually a very well-run company today. And we actually own it in the portfolio. I would have never owned Tilray Tilray 1.0. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so, but you know, today what I talked about is is a very different thing, which is that U.S. companies like Cureleaf or TerraSend, who have gone to the TSX, they've done that purely because that is a world class uh, exchange where uh, many institutions won't invest on the CSE or you know smaller exchanges in Canada because they don't have necessarily the same regulatory framework or compliance 
call it, you know, stamp of approval. TSX is, you know, one of the best exchanges in the world, best being, you know, for uh, compliance dynamics. Compliance officers uh, in any place shouldn't have any issue with a company, at least based upon its listing status and the federal dynamics. And and so Kiraleaf and Terrasen listing on the trial of stock exchange is a precursor to them listing on the New York Stock Exchange. And, right. and I think uh, that's the good news here. This is actually a, a you know really positive event for the industry, whereas companies that were running up to Canada in 2016, 17, 18, and 19 and, and buying shell companies on the CSE and doing a reverse listing, you, you know, that wasn't great. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a slow, it's a slow evolution. I think we're going to have full accessibility to, right. to cannabis companies in the US. And there's there's some important things to talk about with that. You know, we're able to to invest in swaps on US companies or own them outright on the TSX. The good news is that you know, CNBS can own Cureleaf on the TSX. I don't need to own it and swap. Same with TerraSend. Uh, and then a company like GTI, which is the biggest position in the portfolio, I do own on swap because I have to own it on swap because they're not trading in a, an exchange that allows me and allows you know our compliance. And an ETF is, a, is an SEC-governed 40-act product that has a lot of really important rules attached to it. And that's why people love ETFs, because of those protections. But do you feel that that's the best route for you know, investors to participate in the cannabis, the emerging cannabis uh, markets going through an ETF? Look, I, I, I do. I'm clearly biased. I also think that there's an element of, of both diversification and this is what I would call, you know, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the alpha generation is a combination of, of stock picking, of being tactical, and then also just, yeah, being where we are positioned within, you know, a thematic ETF. So, the correlations between the companies are high, but they're they're not as they once were. And so I, I do think that look, I'm I'm constantly talking with these companies, constantly going to events, going to see facilities, reading research. I mean, it it's there's a lot going on here and it's moving quickly. So mm-hmm. and would where do you see the sector in the next three to five years? That as well as what kind of turnover do you see in your portfolio given the the fast pace of this emerging market? Portfolio turnover question, it goes through periods where I think we're more active than others. I'm constantly asking myself every day whether we have the right positioning and, and whether we have the right exposures. And you obviously are working in called the financial services part of this industry. And to the extent that I, I think in the same way that investors want exposure to payments, you know, whether it's digital payments and whether it's, you know, all the sophistication that are coming with with that and the software, those same trends are unfolding, as you know well, inside the cannabis industry almost simultaneously. I want to be exposed to that as well. And I think that's that's really where, you know, every day back to the portfolio, we're trying to gauge whether we have the right positioning for this sector as it exists today and where we think it's going tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit about uh, all the headlines in the cannabis industry that will potentially benefit, you know, the cannabis-related stocks as well as ETF. You're talking about rescheduling, 280E, safe banking, and, and your thoughts on how this will impact investment opportunities in these publicly traded companies as well as private companies that you know want to go public. So, the cannabis industry has always had big macro headlines that have been massive catalysts to to price movement and and 
it, it has often been around some type of you know federal dynamic. And if you go back to even at the end of uh, 2020, we're we're in COVID, but there was an election cycle that you know summer into the fall, and cannabis stocks were rallying into a sense that there was going to be a change in administration. And when that change happened, they rallied, and it yeah, they rallied even more in January when we had a runoff in in the Senate, which which seemingly led to the Democratic control of the Senate, along with a Biden administration, people thought was going to be a slam dunk for cannabis. And so cannabis assets rallied and rallied and went through the roof. And and the, the, the fact of the matter is that the legislative process in DC, we all know how it, you know how dysfunctional it can get, and and so those headlines have been a big part of you know investing in cannabis for a long time. The the, the headlines that came out in the summer, which I, I think are notable because they're different. They don't re, they don't require the same type of legislative follow through. But really, within the Biden administration, there was an announcement in October of 2022 that Biden was very focused on the criminal justice component of this, and also the element that was going to allow at least there be a very healthy look at the efficacy essentially of cannabis as medicinally valued and not just a you know a drug that is you know similar to heroin or LSD or or whatnot. So the point was the administration said in back in 22, we we're gonna we're gonna put the FDA uh, to work to to come up with a a recommendation and bring that to health and human services who will then take it from there and and ultimately, the, the headlines that came out late August were that Health and Human Services, who essentially presides over the FDA, had written a letter of recommendation to the DEA, who would ultimately control the schedule of drugs in, in this country, that, that cannabis should be rescheduled. Cannabis stocks rallied anywhere from 50 to 150 to 200% because you mentioned 280E. One of the biggest issues for cannabis companies today, even the ones that are operating legally in the states that they're operating in, and, and again, these state by state in this country, we continue to see not just medical programs, but adult programs roll out and do very well. I mean, the states are, are moving and marching on a straight line towards every state in the union is going to be a cannabis legal state. But in the meantime, the federal government hasn't really changed their view on this. I'm not sure that the federal government's going to change their view on this anytime soon, even though every state at some point probably will legalize. But the great news here was that if you reschedule the drug from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, you remove what's called Section 280E. And, and that is uh, the punitive taxation on these companies because they are selling a, you know, an illegal Schedule 1 drug product, which means that from an accounting perspective is really where the rubber hits the road here. These companies are unable to subtract, you know, traditional cost of goods sold. So they're taxed really on a gross basis and it's crazy. So it means almost by definition, a lot of these companies are unable to be profitable. If you remove 280E and allow these companies to actually subtract proper cost of goods sold, and especially the the big integrated companies, you're you're going to have a free cash flow dynamic for the industry immediately that's going to change really not only the balance sheets, but the fortunes of these companies and frankly, the fortunes for investors investing in it. And none of this requires Congress to vote. This is all you know, effectively within this administration to make something happen. So, so we finally got some more detail on what the Health and Human Services actually forwarded onto the DEA and it included a 250 page report on the you know, dynamics in the cannabis industry, but really around 
cannabis marijuana, you know, as it's been coined. And, you know, there's a lot of people that would make an argument I agree with that, you know, marijuana as a term was intended to be derogatory and limiting. And, and so I, you know, I, I'm always referring to cannabis as cannabis, not as marijuana, but this 250 page article on where I think they kind of were wrong. And there was a lot of mea culpa in there. And, and look, the expectation is that the DEA will reschedule. The question is when we don't know the timeline on that. And obviously there is a political cycle to be reckoned with, but it's a very exciting you know, set of headlines that I think makes sense given kind of, they, they kind of piece together and, and, and fit together with how the Biden administration has been very inconsistent, by the way, on cannabis, how they are looking to kind of move it forward. And there's no question that, that I think cannabis is, is an election, you know, it's an election item. And I think, right. Right. Cannabis is what they're pushing. right. Well, what do you say? I mean, given what's going on in the markets, you know, so far this year, obviously we had uh, the first, uh, Fed meeting yesterday. We heard what Powell's comments were. They're not making a change at this point in time. What are your thoughts and views on uh, Powell's comments and where Fed policy and cutting rates will be for the rest of the year? Well, I, I think I heard two things from the Fed yesterday. One is that the labor market remains very tight and that inflation remains above their target. And that while they won't be hiking rates anytime soon, um, and are done for this cycle, but I don't know they're going to be cutting as fast as as the markets had priced in that they would. Having said all that, you know, I think we've already seen, and we are the day after as we talk today, those statements, markets already rallied back and taken back most of what it lost. The dynamics for investing in higher growth assets and cannabis, you know, definitely would be a high growth industry. And, you know, some of the, the, the comparisons or the correlations are to you know high growth tech, high multiple tech, arc. You know, I mean, these are yeah. things that that uh, people have often charted those those comparisons. I think cannabis trades on its own, but but there's no question um, since October 26th of last year, markets overall, including, have had a massive rally. Semiconductor space is up 40 percent from October 26th through the highs a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. The S&P was up almost 20%. The NASDAQ was up 25%. Cannabis assets are up 60 to 80%. And, and so some of it's related. Um, I think a lot of it is cannabis independent, but there's no question if global markets are, are, are hemorrhaging and going through a real contraction in risk and a, a risk off moment, it's very difficult for cannabis to rally. So um, what's happening in cannabis, it's, it's fortunate that it's coinciding with a period where people have been a very risk on period in markets. Um, cannabis as a sector year to date is, you know, up 20 to 40%. I mean, there's a couple of names in the portfolio, um, that are up over hundred percent year to date. And, and yeah, so, so it doesn't sound like higher interest rates over the last year has impacted any of these companies because obviously it's more costly for these, you know, emerging, you know, small caps to borrow because they don't have the, the free cash flow to the bottom line, like a big tech company does. And they have to go to the, you know, the banks and the markets to borrow, but it doesn't sound like that's impacted them over the last year based on the returns that have been generated. I'd say there's no question to me that higher interest rates and what Fed has done to capital market cycles um, very much did affect cannabis. And and I would say because cannabis companies have less access to capital, it affected mm-hmm. them even more. So what we are seeing is that as rates have come down <clears throat> and we are near the at split we're, we're at peak fed and we're at peak rates and we're coming in it's a question of how fast we're coming in 
but cannabis markets snipped out the same peak in the Fed that happened in the late fall. So that that's, you know, I would say cannabis was, and these names were very much hurt by the same environment that other stocks were and hurt that much more. And on the way down in rates and the change in those dynamics, they've really outperformed. And, and that outperformance has, has clearly been helped by also the cannabis specific headlines. So it is a really interesting time. And and just, you know, the cannabis markets, because it's kind of been a closed world of of those that have been able to access it, um, I mean, from the investors, it, it's very technical. And and the technicals have been very good three months. And, and you, you know, you see cannabis companies that um, are now trading above the highs they hit in the euphoria after this FDA announcement in late August into September, after they did pull back dramatically and test the lows from before that news. Uh, again, the price action has been really constructive. We're making higher highs. And and I'd, I'd say the best and highest quality companies in the space, their charts look even even better. So I like the technical setup here, even though I don't think we've had a lot of new money come into the space, even with all this good news. <laughs> well, it sounds like it could be an opportune time. I mean, where the Fed starts to cut because they've performed well in anticipation. And I imagine when the Fed starts to cut, uh, that will make that you know borrowing that much more accessible and cheaper. So, I would imagine this is a good time to get into the ETF or get into the cannabis space if you want to see some opportunity over the next several years. I think it's I think it's a fascinating time to be coming into the market. It's it's again it's a market that's you know we're at we're at six month highs, we're at nine month highs, depending on what you're looking at. So it's had a nice run, but we're still so far off the highs. That's not a reason to buy anything, by the way. Something could be down eighty percent, and you know it starts to rally. And if it, if there's not a fundamental argument for owning it, should, sure, you know, project that bounce. But 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 it, it you know the, the combination of the top down and the bottom up from the companies themselves that are operating and operating as efficiently as they ever have. I mean they they've been forced to raise their game. Yeah, you know, any good crisis is, is uh, forces every company to to become nimble and to become efficient. And I think the cannabis industry is no different. The macro uh, headlines in the space are very friendly. And I think, you know, the investors like me that have seen multiple cycles are going to say, look, I'll be cautious about this. And I'm not going to ever really be investing based upon a headline I hope to have. I'm going to be investing based upon the market and the, the, you know, the, the headlines, or I should say the, the, the realities of the legislative or macro environment that we have right now is how I invest every day. Um, yes, it, look, if you're investing in a cannabis ETF today, you're investing before uh, what I say is is a wall of capital that yeah. is yet to come into this this space. And look, if you're a big institutional investor, if you're a hedge fund, you don't need to catch the first, you know, whatever percent in cannabis. You're waiting for some other real follow through. So, you know, I think inv investors that are that are uh, investing here are ones that are in well ahead of that. Before we wrap up, I just want to you know, segue a little bit uh, and get away from what we're talking about in terms of cannabis and investing and talk a little bit about, you know, success and failure, because obviously you've been very successful over your career. You talked about, you know, your beginnings and, you know, how you got to where you're at today. But can you share with our listeners, because I think it's always fascinating to learn about someone's success and the obstacles along the way, you know, a little bit about your success and how much of that would you say is more luck and how much would you say is attributable to timing to where you're at today? Those are good. Those are good uh, qualifiers. I'd say you know, timing and luck are sometimes closely intertwined. I, you know, for me, I think there's been 
hopefully a bit of both. I would layer in a whole lot of uh, a healthy appetite for taking risks at certain times. And again, you know, depending on when you take them in your career. But I, I think, you know, younger people uh, who are in a position to take career risks that are calculated should take them. And and I think success is a, is a function of, you know, whatever percentage you want to put on it, it's a major percentage. How you conduct yourself. Conduct means not only ethics and, and transparency, but obviously it means work ethic too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, th- those things are critical. Um, moving to Russia in the fall of 98 was, was probably dumb luck. I was working at UBS for a few years out of business school, and I was trading uh, what was then called G24 debt, which you know essentially is the sovereign debt, the government bond markets of every developed country in the world, especially before the Europe, the Euro uh, convergence happened. But but I, it was a really interesting place, really interesting job, great job, and a nice pathway there, and enjoyed it. But I you know I had an opportunity to move to Moscow and go to work and have a much bigger job at a smaller bank. That was focused on Russia and emerging markets at a time when the world actually, you know, when I got there, it seemed like it, it had just blown up or was about to blow up. That actually ended up being, from a trader's perspective, the best time to be to be doing it. And emerging markets resources, you know, it was the beginning of a of a real cycle that went on for the next ten years. But it put me in as a emerging markets guy. And and that I think was a really important development for me. It it allowed me to have the vision of understanding how certain types of asset classes might might trade. And, you know, I think I, I was willing to take that chance. And I think part of it was also, you know, you meet a lot of strange people along the road. <laughs> careful how you how you handle yourself. So. Well, that's helped you get to where you're at today. Obviously taking that risk and going to Russia, it sounds like helped you uh get to where you're at today. So that's that's uh, a great, uh, you know, uh, story for, for young people to, to pick up on. But in that, in those travels, obviously there obviously is failure along the way. We've all had failure in our, you know, business life as well as per- personal life. What's been the biggest failure in business and, and what lessons did you take away from, you know, that failure to become a better manager and, and, and a better leader, if you will? I think failure has often been I, I kind of believe there's a limit to how successful you can be if if you want to have lived your life with a certain level of conviction that you think is positive and solid and, and you know, kind of what mom and dad taught you. So there are people that have a lot of success that are willing to do whatever it takes, not been willing to do that at, at certain points. And I think that's something that's maybe held me back. I don't have any problems sleeping at night though. And, and I think- you got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror every morning when you're shaving and be happy with who you are. I've had moments where I, I'm not sure that I recognize the change that was going on in a particular industry or how my businesses need to change to to that changing landscape. And I think people always need to understand like, what's the seat I'm in and what's, a, you know, what could happen? How do I get knocked, you know, how do I get knocked out of the seat? And, and what do I do if I get knocked out of the seat? Or how do I avoid being in a place where I get knocked out of the seat and whether, mm-hmm. whether you're a hedge fund manager, whether you're a trader, whether you are look, investing in cannabis and have all your eggs in a particular basket or with a particular company. I mean, those are the failures that, that I'm sure at times, you know, I have not calculated the, the risks attached to, to that. And times I've been, you know, you know, you dance with the one that brung you. I've 
I've done well by taking success and by being in highly volatile markets. And at times, you know, I've probably taken too much risk. Right. But you learn from that. That's the most important lesson from all. You learn from that and you move forward and you, you become a better manager and a leader because of that. And, and and that's, you know, the biggest takeaway that anybody can take from, you know, failure, if you if you will. Yep. Absolutely. Last question. Make a little bit fun. Favorite book and your la- the last book that you read? I, I tell you what, for a guy that spent a lot of time in Russia, there's a book called Red Notice by a guy named Bill Browder, who was a portfolio manager that I covered at the time, who is a you know, a fascinating guy who took a lot of risks uh, out there at a time when you know a lot of people didn't live to tell those risks. It, it, it at some point is probably going to be a motion picture. I mean, it really is a fascinating movie. And it's certainly one where I think, you know, you've got a lot of dynamics around what goes on in emerging markets there. So I love that book. I'm a big music fan and I'm a big, I, I play music and I've been in a couple of bands for in most of my life or different bands. But anyway, I'm a big fan of the band Wilco and I'm just finishing up Jeff Tweedy's book, which is called Let's Go So We Can Get Back. And it's really a you know, a memoir of, of his life in this band Wilco, which I think is, you know, again, one of the, one of the great bands that's out there today, but it's a band that's been around now for a while. And Tweedy came out of another band in the nineties called Uncle Tupelo. Um, and people thought that the, the other guy in the band, when they split apart was really the one that was going to be successful. And, and there's a lot of lessons in there too, especially in the rock and roll world. But I think there's no question that being an original in the world of the arts is what's going to separate you. And this guy, this guy is definitely that. No, that, that's good to know. That is very interesting and informative. And I appreciate that. Well, this has been great, Tim. I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy every day. If people want to learn more about yourself or, or the fund, how, how do they find more information on you? And I know you're on Twitter or LinkedIn. What's the best way for people to learn more about Tim and what he's up to? Well, first of all, thanks, Joe. It's you know, this has been a great forum and, and uh, exciting times in the cannabis world. If people want to learn more about uh, investing in our ETF, go to the Amplify ETF site. And, and again, it's the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF. And we were excited to, to share that we've rolled up a couple other existing cannabis ETFs onto the platform. So like to believe that this is uh, uh, you know a, a handful of uh, funds now that are focused in cannabis and we're the right place to be. I run a wealth management business and we're we're there serving family offices and clients and you know Seymour Asset Management is the name of that firm and SeymourAM.com. You can get more information there. Okay, terrific. Well, this has been great. Thanks uh, for listening to Freedom to Buy this afternoon presented by Supernet each week. Uh, you can also listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please join us next week to learn more about Freedom to Buy and the opportunities in the cannabis industry. Thank you and have a great day, everybody.